Church, please go ahead and open your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts and Romans. If you get to First and Second Corinthians, then go back to the left. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 will be our primary text. Or as always, you can type it in to your device that you're pulling up a Bible app or something like that. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 will be our home today as we continue this series in Romans. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and it's always a joy in the middle of whatever <laughs> to open up God's Word together and to seek Him and to look to Him for, as what we have just sung, our hope in life and in death. And so Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And in this particular passage, Paul is continuing a thought. It's, it's something that's carrying over, if you will, from verse 17 where we ended last week, where we looked at last Sunday. And the connecting word there is that word for, if you notice, or in, in some of our translations, it may be therefore, but it says for I consider at the beginning of verse 18. Um, and that really connects us right with verse 17. So it's important for us to kind of keep that in mind as we move forward in this particular consideration today. So Romans 8, verse 17. So if you've got to verse 18, just move your eyes up one verse. It says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul is focusing in that previous passage on what it means to be the family of God or the children of God. But if you notice, this language says there's a bit of a condition to it. A condition given to the children of God who desire glory, who desire one day to be with God forever and to see the truth and beauty and majesty of Jesus over all things. There's a requirement, if you will, for those who are to inherit eternal life or to be glorified with Christ. What does Paul say? All this is yours, provided you suffer. All of this is yours, provided you suffer with him. I, just to be honest with you, I want to quickly move past that, focus on the family of God, being a child of God. I don't like that caveat very much, particularly not in the middle of a season where suffering seems pretty clear to us. And it's really a challenging season and the existence of humanity. But let's not miss this. What Paul is saying is that suffering comes with being part of the family of God. Suffering comes with being part of the family of God, but also that suffering is the pathway to glory. So he communicates both these things in that sentiment in verse 17. In other words, there's not only an association that comes with suffering, but there's a goal in mind that God has for us in the middle of our suffering. Suffering unites us with Christ. And notice the connective tissue then between Christ and the children of God, which is knit through suffering, is that we are heirs with Christ, Paul says. We suffer with Christ and we're glorified with Christ. I think the most brilliant piece of that is that we're with Christ in all of this, whether we are heirs, whether we suffer, or whether we see glory. And so essentially what, what we learn is that to be a Christian is to suffer. But to be a Christian is to know that our suffering is never in vain. Paul has whispered this theme throughout the first seven chapters of Romans, but now I think he gets very clear on it. And this is such a critical message, I think, and hopeful message for us today. And in God's providence, we're, we're looking at this text in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of, again, what may be some of the most challenging days that many of us have had in the middle of, a, uh, of this global health crisis. And you should 
we, I think we should all admit that there's this particular brand of Christianity that creeps in and has crept up through church history, which suggests that God doesn't want us to suffer at all in this life, but instead to be rich and powerful and famous in Jesus' name, right? The more money we have, the more Instagram followers we have, then the more good we'll do in Jesus' name. In fact, in that particular ideology, money and success are evidences of God's blessing and love. Sometimes it goes by the name, the prosperity gospel, and it's been birthed out of this country and exported all over the world. And this so-called gospel has much more to do with America than it has to do with Jesus. And so often when we face themes of suffering, our minds might go there. But actually, that's not what I fear for our church family. I don't fear for you, I don't fear for myself that we will adopt and adapt and buy in hook, line, and sinker to what is an overt lie of the particular culture and condition that we're in. Here's what I fear. I fear we will fall prey to a much more subtle whisper of ease and comfort and deserving, which slowly draws us away from righteousness. It's not a fully formed theology like the prosperity gospel. Rather, it's this feeling It's a quick choice. It's a moment-by-moment concession to choose what is easy over what is holy. And I think this persists in my heart, and and my fear is that it persists in all of our hearts in this day, in this age, in our particular cultural moment. And one of my jobs as one of your elders is to prepare our church to suffer well. It's not my favorite part of my job, but when I open the scriptures, I I see clearly that one of my jobs is to prepare us to suffer well, because Jesus promised we would. See, the Bible teaches us that to be a Christian is to suffer, but it also teaches us that to be a Christian is to know that our suffering is never in vain. That's what I'd like to explore today from this verse. That's the tension of the Christian story, isn't it? That suffering is inevitable, but it's never final. That suffering is inevitable, but it's never final if you are in Christ. And Jesus put it this way. In this world, you will have tribulation or trouble. But he says, fear not. Why? I've overcome the world. Suffering is inevitable, but it's never final. That's how and why Paul continues this thought here in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, which will be our primary consideration today. So please hear this. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's consider these two realities today based on this text. Suffering is inevitable, but suffering is never final. Let's ask for God's help. Father, as we come to this text, we maybe we're coming in a different way than we've ever come before. Tender, weary, languishing, frustrated, upset, feeling completely disoriented to what life used to feel and be like. Because in some respects, what we're going through is not new, but in other respects, the combined and the ever-increasing weight of all that is happening continues to be a heavy burden on my sisters and brothers, on, on myself. And so, Father, we look to you. We're desperate. We need help. We need your love. We need your truth. And so help us, Father, as we come to your word to be humble, to be receptive, to be eager, to be dependent and trust, trusting in you. 
And help me, Father, help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. And help us to continue, Father, in the midst of all of this, to become the kids, the children of God, the church of Jesus that you're calling us to be in this city, in this time, for your glory and our good, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus, everybody said all over the city, amen. So Paul's saying that for those in Christ, suffering is inevitable, but it's never final. And we see the inevitability of suffering, I think, in the very beginning of verse 18. Let's look at it again, just that first portion. It says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time, the suffering of this present time. Now, before we get a better understanding of the nature of suffering, and particularly what Paul has in mind when he says the suffering of this present time, which seems pretty epic, right? I think we should look at one word because it's really helpful and it might be really annoying to you, but just stay with me, all right? Look at that word consider. In the Greek language, this word connotes not a passing or fleeting thought, but rather Paul has deeply contemplated suffering. He's calculated multiple perspectives and ideas. He's weighed options that were presented to him and in reference to God's Word. Therefore, consider expresses a strong assurance based on logic, reason, and theology. Now, why is that so important? Why is that word consider not annoying but helpful? Why is it important to point out? What's the big deal with this one word? Well, let's be honest. Remember, I love you so much, Church in the Square. Let's be honest. When it comes to suffering, we don't usually consider it. We usually don't take hold of thoughts of suffering or ideas of suffering and weigh them and go to God's Word and and seek different perspectives and calculate what is true, what is righteous, what is beautiful. Instead, I think what is true in my heart often, what was true of me even this week, is that we have feelings about suffering and then we react to those feelings. We have feelings about suffering and then we react to those feelings. We don't consider Meaning we avoid, I think, at all costs, really weighing what suffering means and what it has to teach us and what it reveals about our God. Rather than interrogating suffering, I believe that the way Paul is suggesting through his own example. And I think it's in those moments, it's when and where, that moment-by-moment battle of conceding and of concession shows up, giving in to what is easy rather than what is holy, A couple of months back, if you remember back in Romans chapter 5, because I know that you've kept all of these passages and lessons from them on reserve right away to get out of the file in your mental capacity right away. Back in Romans chapter 5, we learned that when we face suffering, Christians are not to be those that say, why me? As sort of a question, but really a protest that it's not fair. That, That doesn't make sense for the Christian, as if suffering is always a surprise, unfair, and haphazard and out of God's control. Rather, we learned that what Christians ask is what is God doing in this? What is, what is he up to in the middle of this? In other words, when we suffer, two presumptions should show up for the follower of Jesus. God is providentially good, and he is about my good. Therefore, what's all this mean? What's he doing in this? My two presumptions when suffering shows up is God is providentially good, and he is about my good. Therefore, through that lens, I consider suffering. So, we ask, what's he up to? We consider, we think deeply about God's power, about God's goodness, and how those might be at work within our suffering. Remember, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which which we'll consider in a couple uh, of weeks. 
says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, God's love and power and control and goodness are the lens through which we see our suffering. Or we might say that we don't seek to understand the Lord through our suffering. Rather, we seek to understand our suffering through our Lord. We consider. When we consider our suffering, I think what we'll see is that suffering is inevitable, but suffering is never final. And so we need to learn to ask, what's God up to in our suffering? This is hard to do. In order to help us ask and answer this question uh, about God's grace uh, or, or with God's grace and become better stewards, I think, of the suffering that God providentially allows to come our way, I'd like to talk about four different types of suffering or ways we face suffering, reasons for why suffering is inevitable. In each of those cases, ask what's God up to and consider appropriate responses because not all suffering is the same. We aren't all suffering in any season of life or in any one moment, all for the same reasons. There are different reasons why we might be suffering. So I'd like to look at four of those reasons. But before we do that, a couple of preliminary thoughts. First, considering suffering in this way is almost never the first move. And I think this is really important. It's something I'm learning in my own story because my, my tendency as a preacher, as a pastor, is in the moment, let's just dissect it intellectually and theologically. But at the end of the day, when we go through suffering, we aren't really facing an intellectual issue. We're, we're facing a relational issue between us and God. And so we should be very careful to race ahead if we are suffering to just ask questions and demand information. And when our brothers or sisters are suffering or a spouse or a child or a friend is suffering, be very quickly to, to offer trite information to help pacify someone's frustration or pain. See, first and foremost, I think what we long for in the middle of suffering is not information but intimacy. We long for intimacy. We may feel like we need information, and, and it's, it's fine to ask God questions, but ultimately we don't need data. We need comfort. We need peace. Your brother or sister who is going through hell right now needs your presence, needs your love, needs your relationship. To be sure, intimacy doesn't solve all of the questions that we may have, that suffering may create or expose, but it dignifies everyone who suffers. See, I think because when we suffer, there's a number of questions that are prevailing in our hearts and minds, and I think the, the curiosity of the soul in the middle of suffering is, am I seen? Am I okay? Am I even human? Because there's something about suffering that feels very antithetical to our existence as human beings. And so relational intimacy shows up in the middle of suffering in the form of love or a hug or a phone call or a Zoom, whatever it might be, the presence of another human being that says, I see you, I'm with you, you are still here, and I love you. See, all of these things begin to combat what I think that is really going on underneath. We're going to consider today the truth of what God's Word says, but I think often we need to be careful to move too quickly to information and make sure that we are receiving and giving intimacy in the middle of suffering. Secondly, what are we even talking about when we talk about suffering? Let's keep in mind that when we talk about suffering, we're not talking about minor inconveniences or discomforts. We're not talking about your favorite coffee shop running out of your milk alternative. That is really, really hard, and I'm very sorry for you, but that is not what Paul has in mind. Suffering is the meaningful cost of vulnerability in this present time. 
This is what Paul has in mind, I believe. Paul is considering suffering in our present time. In this time, our vulnerabilities then take on many different forms. It could be economic. It could be physical, social, relational, mental, spiritual. And any vulnerability always opens us up to cost or to the possibility of suffering. Suffering is the meaningful cost of vulnerability in our present time in this day and age. So these four types of suffering, I think, are the result then are four different kinds of four different kinds of vulnerabilities that we have as human beings in this present age. We'll look at the broken world, we'll look at the nature of sin in our own lives, the nature of being sinned against, and then finally considering the goodness of God and how sometimes we suffer simply because He's good and He is at work in our lives. So with those things in mind, four causes of suffering and how we might appropriately respond. First, we suffer because this world is broken. We suffer because this world is broken. The book of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, gives us an account of how our world fell apart. It's not simply the story of, of God creating everything, but it's also that of human rebellion and how that rebellion fractured everything in God's good world. And if we peek ahead to Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 21, we'll get a picture of how catastrophic this is. It says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 and following, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For, the creation, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who created, who subjected it, rather, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So all of creation, in light of the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve, this world is subjected to futility. It is in bondage to corruption. Creation is beautiful, yet it is broken, and it is longing to be set free. Therefore, to simply exist in this world is to be vulnerable to injury, to pain, to decay, to disease, and yes, even to death. No one is particularly at fault because of this. In, in this imperfect world, there are imperfect systems and situations and even weather patterns that cause suffering. We need to look no further than the global health crisis we're in the middle of. There's no one to blame for this. We are merely in the middle of what it means to be broken. Sure, there may be things in the way that we've responded to it that we could point to, but the existence of disease is a part of the brokenness of this world. And we suffer through sickness and isolation and loss of work and anger and frustration and all, I don't even have to enumerate all of the things. You know what I'm talking about. So what's God up to in our suffering, which is caused by this broken world? I think what the Lord is doing in this is that he's teaching us dependency and endurance. Dependency and endurance. See, when we experience suffering caused by this broken world, I think we should remember passages like Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verse 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble and it, at its swelling, Selah. Suffering is inevitable, church, because this world is broken. And this suffering, I believe, is meant to lead us to dependency and endurance, individually and as God's people together. So we suffer because the world is broken. We also suffer, though, because we sin. 
We suffer also because we sin. See, while Paul has clearly taught us that the wages of sin is is death, the whole counsel of God reiterates time and again that when we sin, it leads to consequence. The writer of Proverbs explains the plight suffering of sinners even in this life. Proverbs 5, 22 through 23 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So, unsaved sinners suffer consequence of eternal suffering and separation from God and death, but all who sin in this life suffer the consequences of being ensnared, the Proverbs writer says, held fast and being foolish. When we sin, it does not go well for us. Sometimes there are natural consequences to our sin, and sometimes there are supernatural consequences to our sin. That means that sometimes the hardship and the pain and the challenge we experience is because of us, which is really hard for us often to face and admit. Sometimes things are not going well because we've made poor decisions, we haven't trusted the Lord, we have rebelled against Him, and we have sinned. Because of our sin, we suffer. Pastor Ray Ortland put it this way, we sin and we suffer misery for it. Sin always spawns misery. It's all sin can do. So what's God up to in the middle of our suffering, which is caused by our sin personally? I believe that God is correcting us and he is inviting us into repentance. So how do we respond to suffering that we're facing because of our sin? We need to repent. Or to put it another way, I think God demonstrates his goodness and power to his people by giving them, by giving us consequences. Now, why could we say that consequence is good? Because in God's kindness, his righteous correction wakes wakes us up from our sinful slumber and protects us from even more egregious sin and even greater consequence and suffering. So his consequence is corrective. It's loving, it's kind, because in our consequence, we come face to face with God, with his righteousness, and therefore sin is revealed, and we should, in response, repent, which is not simply communicating an emotion of sorrow, but confessing that we have gone a different way, that we have rebelled against God. Here's how Professor Rosario Butterfield explains, I think quite helpfully, how we respond or how we repent when we face consequence. She says, there is only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You must fall on your face and repent of your sins. Repentance, she says, is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute-by-minute wake-up call, our reminder of God's creation, Jesus' blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. Repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian conscience because it only proves the obvious. God was right all along. Suffering is inevitable because we sin. And this suffering is meant to lead you, my sister and my, my brother and me, it's meant to lead us to repentance and ultimately righteousness. So we suffer because of our sin. Thirdly, we suffer because of other sins. Someone has sinned against us. When people sin against us, we suffer. We're not guilty. They are. We are innocent. We have not done wrong. They have. But we still suffer nonetheless. This is not a consequence. This is an injustice. 
And this type of suffering takes place individually, corporately, and even systematically. To be sure, though, there's a wide spectrum of ways in which we are sinned against and the levels of suffering that we go through as a result of those sins. An offense may be as minimal as a child's disobedience at bedtime, which is really infuriating, but in the grand scheme of things, is not really that big of a deal. Or maybe as evil as intimate violence and murder. And regardless of the sins against us, I think the thing that always follows being sinned against is shame. Shame is often a form of suffering that we endure quite invisibly that we may not even have language for when we are sinned against. Because we, we are told or we tell ourselves that we are bad and that whatever pain we are experiencing is because we are bad, because we have done wrong. The scriptures, I think, in a very healthy and loving way, give us language for this so that we would be freed from the shackles of shame. So what's God up to in the middle of our suffering from shame when others sin against us? Hear what David writes in Psalm chapter 3. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. Did you hear that? Many are rising against David. They belittle his faith. Many sin against him, and they even try to kill him. But God's response, and David sees God's response, and that is what? Not to correct David or say you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, or you were behaving in a way that brought that on. He doesn't blame David. What does he do? God protects him. God lifts his head. God hears him. God answers him. In all of this, we see that God is a God who draws near to us in our shame when others have sinned against us. See, suffering is inevitable because others sin against us. And this suffering reveals to us a God who is willing and gracious, who draws near to us in love, who identifies with us in that. So we suffer because this world is broken. We suffer because we sin. We suffer because of the sins of others. And we also suffer simply because God is good. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes our suffering is not because things are broken or because of sin, whether it be ours or or anyone else's. Many of life's difficulties are brought about by God's good design. God has intentionally shaped the world in such a way that effort and struggle and, yes, even pain and suffering and being open to vulnerabilities in this world, to significant cost, all of these things would be required to accomplish significant change, progress, growth, and reward. From the beginning, Adam is even given a job, which I think is really important. He's giving a job to work before the fall. So work itself is not part of the consequence of humanity's sin, but part of the gift of God's good creation. But work is hard. Work is really hard to do, whether you're doing work remotely, whether you are working with your hands or your mind or your whole body or all different kinds of work, all have their different challenges with them. See, when we embrace When embrace is a gift from God, work makes us strong, more collaborative, more skilled, and so on. Not only so, but in God's goodness, we even suffer through our work and go through difficulties in our job because it is something is taking place within this world and even within us that the old self is dying. 
to where I just use my work to serve myself, learning to use my work to actually serve others, the old self is dying, and that's hard. Even in this world, as the Lord chips away at the old way of living and thinking, false loves and ways and impulses of my heart that are contrary to his kingdom, he's renewing a right spirit within me and weeding out all of these things. He's discipling us, church. He's, he's helping us to grow, and that sometimes feels a whole lot like suffering. So what's God up to in our suffering in light of his goodness? The Apostle James writes this at the beginning of his letter to the scattered church in the first century. Maybe you've heard this before. James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice James is talking about a suffering that isn't just existing because the world is broken. It's not a suffering because you've done wrong or you've been sinned against. It's that language of the testing of your faith. The Lord is leaning in. He is growing your soul. He is making you strong, and it is really hard. See, sometimes our suffering is, what's happening in our suffering is that we are becoming less and less like Adam and more and more like Jesus. Less and less like Adam and more and more like Jesus. And we should never pray away this difficulty. Rather, we should embrace it, discern its purpose, look to Jesus, and rejoice that we are being made more like Christ. Through many of life's difficulties, that's exactly what's happening, is God is making you more like his son. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11 says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal bodies. See, suffering is inevitable because God is good. And by testing us and discipling us, he is making us more like his son. So what's God up to in the middle of our suffering? It depends what kind of suffering we're talking about. We suffer because the world is broken, and in that case, God is shaping in us dependency and endurance. We suffer because we sin. God is leading us then to repentance and righteousness. Sometimes we suffer because we have been sinned against. And in that, God is drawing near to us to demonstrate his incredible affection and love for us. Sometimes we suffer because God is good. God is making us more like Jesus. And for all of those reasons, and likely for many others, this is why suffering is inevitable. For those who are in Christ, suffering is inevitable. But look at the latter half of verse 18, back in Romans chapter 8. All the suffering in this present age that we're thinking about, where does Paul take this thought? Paul says, all the, present, all the suffering in this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So suffering is inevitable, yes, but suffering, Paul says, is never final. Let's consider, maybe even celebrate that truth, because that's some good news for me today. See, in eternity past, God the Son was never vulnerable. Therefore, God the Son knew nothing of suffering. That's certainly not experientially. Some debate whether or not he could have cognitively conceived of what suffering was like, but experientially, God did not know what suffering was like. He, he enjoyed perfect union, God the Son did, and intimacy with God the Father and God the Spirit. God the Son did not suffer. Suffering, therefore, was not inevitable for him. Why? Well, let's look back over our list. The broken world, sin, and then God's goodness. 
the world in eternity past was not yet created. Therefore, he was not in this world, so he did not suffer from the effects of a broken world. What about personal sin? Well, God the Son never sinned, so he never actually experienced consequence. What about other sin? Well, people didn't exist yet, and God the Father and God the Spirit never sinned against God the Son, so he never suffered because of the sins of others. What about God's goodness? Well, because God the Son was perfect, God the Father has never discipled him in the way that we understand it today through the New Testament. God's goodness was purely enjoyed by God the Son, and it never caused suffering. We might say this, in eternity past, all God the Son knew was glory. He knew no suffering. All he knew was glory. And I think it's really important that we understand, conceive, and even ask for faith to, to believe that. Why? Because something happens then. If all of that is true, then something happens at creation, and something more happens at the incarnation of the Son of God. These two historic moments are when God the Son steps into vulnerability. He, he did not know vulnerability as we describe it and understand it and have experienced it today and considered it from our text. See, if suffering is the meaningful cost of vulnerability in this present time, then only one can only suffer when one is vulnerable. So when God creates time and all of creation, and particularly human beings to be in relationship with him at creation, God opens himself up willingly. God becomes vulnerable at the moment of creation. And if that weren't enough, God the Son takes on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, God opens himself up even more. Not only is he then vulnerable to the broken world and to be sinned against as he was at creation, but is now tempted in every way, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and even makes himself killable. So creation and the incarnation are ultimate demonstrations of divine vulnerability. God opens himself up to suffering. So what's God up to in the middle of Jesus' suffering, in the middle of Jesus' vulnerability, God the Son in the flesh? Or we might ask this, what happens to all his glory? What happens to the glory as he steps into suffering? In a word, nothing. Nothing happens to the glory of Christ. And I think actually Paul brings that out again in a single word. Look again at verse 18. The glory that is to be what? What's that word? Say it in your living room. Revealed. It's not created. It's not a created glory. It's not a glory that shows up after the suffering. It's not a glory that will come one day. What does he say? The glory is revealed. What's that mean? I don't know much, but it means it already existed. It means that it was already there, but we couldn't see it. It was a dim reflection. It was not apparent to us, but it was present nevertheless. Am I preaching to you yet? See, glory has always been there. Glory never went anywhere. Glory is already secure, and in his death, his glory endures, triumphs over suffering, and then is revealed over all creation. You see, since Jesus' suffering is—this is fantastic. God, help us believe this— Jesus' suffering is purely voluntary and completely undeserved. Because of that, because he is all glory, something then happens at a cosmic level when he suffers and dies on a cross. When Jesus dies on a cross, 
It is revealed that he is the architect of a new heavens and new earth, freed from imperfection and brokenness. Glory is revealed. When Jesus dies on the cross, it's revealed that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Sins are completely eradicated. Sin is destroyed and defeated on the cross. In other words, glory is revealed. When Jesus dies on the cross, he reveals that he is the great high priest who washes away our guilt and our shame. Glory is revealed. When Jesus dies on the cross, he reveals that he is the firstborn of a new creation in the language of Colossians chapter 1, a fully realized humanity. Glory is revealed. See, when glory dies on the cross, suffering in every form is put on notice because his glory is revealed. His glory is being revealed. And Paul tells us that one day all glory or the fullness of glory will be fully revealed. And when we see and experience this glory, what Paul is telling us today, hear and believe this church, when we see this glory, it will be beyond compare to the light and momentary affliction that you and I endure right now. Think about that. As heavy as the suffering is, as overwhelming as the threat of death and the experience of death, think about the weight of sorrow, of pain, of loss, of disease, of fear, of shame. All of that weight that is on humanity. Think about that weight and then hear this. The glory that we will be revealed is beyond compare. It overwhelms all of that suffering. It is greater, more powerful, more wonderful, more weightier, more real than any suffering you've ever experienced. See, in Christ, suffering is inevitable, but in Christ, suffering is never final. Church in the square, please hear this good news for us today. Over and against any shallow gospel of prosperity and far more brilliant than the cheap whisper of ease and comfort. The one who only knew glory took on suffering so that you and I, who only know suffering, can take on glory. So may we find hope, peace, and joy and glory in him. Heavenly Father, help us to believe this today. We pray like the man that your son Jesus confronted one day who had faith, but he said, help me with my unbelief. Father, when we face suffering, we often come face to face with our unbelief. So help us to be a people that seek to understand, that seek to understand what it means that you are a God who did not remain high off in the midst of our suffering in your glory, but actually made yourself vulnerable at creation and at the incarnation. You identified with us in our suffering. You drew near to give us the gift of relational intimacy with the God of the universe so that we would know your love, we would know your peace, we would know your comfort in the middle of affliction and pain. And so as we suffer, may we look to you. May we seek to understand. May we worship. May we trust. May we become dependent. Give us endurance. Give us joy and gladness even as we shed tears. You're a really good God to us. Help us to trust you as a family, as a church, as a people. 
for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.